Good morning, Arcadia. How are you? Good to see you. Man, saw a lot of new faces this morning, and so I want to greet you and welcome you. Uh, say that we are glad that you are here. And uh, if this is your first time, my name is Frank. I'm the uh, uh, lead pastor here at Redemption Arcadia. If you're wondering um, why we have to say Arcadia after redemption, like we have an identity crisis or something, here's, here's a story. Uh, redemption Church is one church with seven congregations. And so there's six other congregations meeting this morning and a couple of them that will also meet tonight. Uh, five of them, five of the uh, uh, other six are in Maricopa County. The other one is in uh, Flagstaff. And so we are the, redemption, the uh, Arcadia expression of Redemption Church. And so we're glad that you are here. If you need any other information about us, you can check our website, redemptionaz.com. You can talk to Stephanie. You can find me. You can find people up front uh, after the service. Whatever you need to do, we'd be glad to help you out with that. You can also fill out a Connect card. Um, and uh, in terms of what we're going to talk about this morning, uh, you should uh, go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 13 because we, we are taking a break from our verse-by-verse study of the book of Romans, uh, which we've been in for the last year. We'll pick that back up again the beginning of July, but we're, we're in the middle of a, a little four-week mini-series uh, titled <clears throat> Pictures of the Kingdom, which is about uh, the kingdom of heaven parables that Jesus tells in Matthew chapter 13. We're going to look at the parable of the weeds this morning. And again, if you're new, one of the things I want to tell you about Redemption Church is that we believe that all of life is all for Jesus, and that's a really important distinction for you to understand. Uh, We don't believe that uh, our faith or our religion or however you want to discuss it is only expressed and practiced on Sunday morning here at church. We believe that our faith is in Jesus is for all of our lives, that, that we carry it out from here as we go into the rest of our lives during the, during the week. In fact, uh, we would argue you live 99% of your life outside of this church, and it's probably most important that your faith uh, in Jesus Christ would be expressed there. So in your family, at your work, in school, uh, wherever you might be, all of life, all of our lives is all for Jesus. And we, we get a little bit of that certainly in these, in these parables here that we have been going through. Last week was the parable of the soils. I'll talk a little bit about that in, this, in a second when we review it. And this week is the parable of the weeds, pictures of the kingdom. Now, when I was at the preaching collective, all the pastors get together every week from Redemption to talk about uh, maybe how we might approach each of the passages that we do. It's very helpful to us. Uh, and a couple of weeks ago when we were looking specifically at this passage that we're doing today, uh, I, I got into a conversation with Luke, who's the lead pastor out in, at Gateway, and we started talking about how it might be interesting if we also, during uh, this sermon especially, if we read to you a little bit of what you can find on our website about what Redemption Church believes. Now, let me say that everything we believe is directed by and rooted in Scripture. We don't, we don't fill in any gaps. We don't come at you with anything that isn't uh, uh, found in Scripture, that, that its foundation isn't in Scripture. Uh, but, but we think it's interesting that of all the things, if you go to our website and go to the place where it says what we believe, There's 10 or 12 different sections, really important sections that help you understand uh, what it is as a church that we believe and why. And and we're a little bit surprised, frankly, when we'll run into somebody who's been attending Redemption Church, whatever um, congregation it is, and they've been attending for not weeks or even months, but maybe years, 
And they've never actually read what it is that we believe. They don't really know what Redemption Church believes. You, you enjoy attending, you come, you like it, the service times are right, the parking is really convenient, uh, uh, the preaching is wonderful, the music is even better. Whatever the reason is that you come, you have friends here, uh, but you don't stop and think, well, I wonder exactly what it is they believe, and we have all that on the website. Well, there's one section titled, pictures of the kingdom and it's specifically what we believe about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God and a lot of what we believe what a lot of what we've written there comes from Matthew chapter 13 and by the way you can see shadows of it also in the book of Romans so I think I think that's interesting and so Luke and I thought it might be good to read that section to you this morning and maybe just comment on it a little bit and help help you understand what it is that we're looking to do in this little series on pictures of the kingdom it's four paragraphs um, hanging there with me. It's really interesting, and I think it'll be really helpful to a lot of you, especially those of you that haven't necessarily read it. So, it says, the kingdom of God. We at Redemption Church believe that those who have been saved by the grace of God through union with Jesus Christ by faith and through regeneration by the Holy Spirit, we believe that they enter the kingdom of God and delight in the blessings of the new covenant. And those blessings of the new covenant are the forgiveness of sins, the inward transformation that awakens a desire to glorify, trust, and obey God, and the prospect of the glory yet to be revealed. And that last section, that glory yet to be revealed, that's right out of Romans chapter 8. It's the understanding that, 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 that there is a, a greater glory that is yet to even come. We have some glory now. We have some foretaste and understanding of the kingdom of heaven now on earth. But there's an even greater glory to come when Jesus Christ comes again and ushers in the new Jerusalem. That's going to be even better. The next paragraph says this. Good works constitute, that word would mean demonstrate or show, so our good works as Christians, once we become Christians, we're going to manifest that outwardly, good works constitute indisputable evidence of saving grace. In other words, what we said last week in the parable of the soils is that people of the kingdom bear fruit. We're fruity. We make, we make fruit. We produce fruit. There's going to be a difference in our lives. My wife, Jackie, we've been married uh, almost 27 years now. She knew me before I was a Christian. And she would tell you that there is a difference in, in who I am prior to knowing Christ and now that I know Christ. It's not just that I'm older and slower, but she says there's a difference in who I am at my core, in my soul, in my heart. She says the Holy Spirit has worked in your life. Kingdom people bear fruit goes on to say, living as salt in a world that is decaying and light in a world that is dark, believers should neither withdraw into seclusion from the world nor become indistinguishable from the world. Rather, we are to enter the world and do good to the city for all the glory and honor of the nations is to be offered up to the living God. And again, that would be shadows of Romans chapter 12, that idea that everything we do, our entire lives is, are lived as a sacrifice to God, a sacrifice of worship to God. We don't just come in on Sunday morning and sacrifice, um, sing sacrifices of praise to God. We do this throughout our entire lives. The next paragraph. Recognizing whose created order this is, it would be God's created order, and because we are citizens of God's kingdom, we are to love our neighbors as ourselves, doing good to all, especially to those who belong to the household of God. Now, this is an important distinction 
I know that as a Christian, I am called to do good to everybody, that, that, that everybody is my brother, everybody is my neighbor, everybody is somebody that I'm going to try to do good to, but I have a particular priority to the people who are in the church. So if I'm faced with a situation where I need to take care of somebody in the church or I need to take care of somebody outside of the church and I can only do one, I am going to have to lean towards the person inside of the church. That's what, that's what our call is. So especially to those who belong to the household of God. The kingdom of God, already present but not yet fully realized, that's going to be a tension that we are certainly going to unpack in, the, in today's parable. The idea that the kingdom of God is here, but it's not here in its completion. It is not here in its consummate glory. And so we live in this sort of liminal space, this, this space in between. And so there's some tension there. And so we're going to talk a lot about that today. The kingdom of God, already present but not fully realized, is the exercise of God's sovereignty in the world toward the eventual redemption of all creation. In other words, the kingdom of heaven that's here now, that came when Jesus originally came 2,000 years ago, is merely a foretaste of what is going to come in its total and glorious completion. The last paragraph. The kingdom of God is an invasive power. The kingdom of God is an invasive power that plunders Satan's dark kingdom and regenerates and renovates through repentance and faith in the lives of individuals rescued from that kingdom. What kingdom are we rescued from? We are rescued from Satan's kingdom. There are two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of God, there's the kingdom of heaven, and there's Satan's kingdom. And you're in one or you're in the other. Before I came to know Christ when I was 27 years old, I didn't realize it. And then when I began to be taught this, I didn't want to admit it. But I was part of Satan's kingdom. And once I gave my life to Christ, once the Holy Spirit entered my life and regenerated me, then I became a part of God's kingdom. You're either in or you're out. And I'm sorry to use language like that because in our culture today, we're not supposed to use that kind of language. But that's the language Jesus uses. He uses it throughout the Bible and that's the way it is. Therefore, inevitably, uh, therefore, it inevitably establishes a new community of human life together under God. That's the kingdom of God. It inevitably establishes a new community of human life under God. I mentioned this last week. We do good works and we are in community with each other, not because they are mandated by God, but because of what he has done in our lives through his son Jesus Christ, his goodness and grace and mercy in our lives, out of loving response and grateful response, it is inevitable that we are going to begin to bear fruit. It's not mandated, it is inevitable. It's just going to happen. And much of what I just read to you is going to come alive through the teaching of today's parable. So this is the parable of the weeds. Last week we talked about the soils, the parable of the soils, the, the parable of the readiness of a person's heart to hear the proclamation of the gospel. Uh, the, and, and there were four different responses that can be manifested according to Jesus, and as pastors we've seen all four of these responses, uh, to the proclamation of the gospel. The first response is that hard soil. That's the person who won't even give a listen to the gospel. That's the person who's got their spiritual Teflon up and you throw the seed of the gospel at it and it just pings off and they're not even listening to it. And the second seed w w would be this, this seed that's very, uh, I'm sorry, the second soil would be the soil that's very shallow. It, it's the soil that rhetorically hears and likes the gospel. 
But then when you begin to find out that with the gospel comes the idea that your life is going to change and there are going to be some challenges, you fall away because you don't like the cost of what the gospel means in your life. And so there's no salvation there. And then there's the thorny soil. That's the person, again, who rhetorically hears the good news of the gospel and, and, and could make sense of it rhetorically. But once again, they, they like the gospel and they want to appropriate parts of the gospel to their lives, but they also want to still hold on to their gods in their own world, in their own life. So they're counterfeit gods that they have in their life, whatever they are, the things they're, those, those um, functional saviors that they have in their life, they don't want to let them go. They want to they keep them and still prioritize them, but sort of uh, stick Jesus on as an addendum to their life just in case. And so it's a, again, it's a, it's a shallowness of a different kind, only now your, your soil is distracted by the gods of the world and not by the one true God. And then there's the fourth response. That's, that's the good soil, the faithful soil, the soil that hears and appropriates the word deeply and produces fruit, the salvation soil. And again, I'll reiterate, those in the kingdom of heaven produce fruit. That's one of the ways we know that you're in the kingdom of heaven. And so now the parable of the weeds. And you've, you heard it read. You heard David read it. You must know what's coming. Here's the big idea of this parable and what we're going to unpack today. The big idea is this. There will be judgment and we are called to live in view of that call, coming judgment. There will be judgment. It's inescapable. Inescapable. And you and I, as believers in Christ, are called to live in view of that judgment. I'll give you a little uh, preview of what that means. Number one, it means that our faith is going to be tested. Our faith is going to be tested. You know, a faith that's never tested isn't faith at all. Faith has to be tested for it to be exercised and worked. The other thing that we're going to, one of the other things that we're going to discuss also is that it means that we have to live with patience and perseverance. It means that we're going to have to exercise patience, which is a fruit of the, of the Spirit, and perseverance to be able to continue to trudge along and dig along. Long obedience in the same direction, going toward that, that goal of the upward call of Christ Jesus. Okay? So, Jesus... Like last week, Jesus explains this parable too, which is kind of interesting. There are two parables that I know of in Scripture where Jesus goes back and explains them. We're doing both of them in Matthew 13. So we're going to have that as well today. So we'll have two sections of Scripture we'll look through. I'm going to read through the parable again, and then in a few minutes we'll go to Jesus' explanation of the parable, which is in verses 36 through 43. So starting in verse 24, let me read the parable again. Jesus put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came to him and said, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, then do you want us to go out and gather them? But he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at the harvest time I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. He says, this is a picture of what the kingdom of heaven looks like. Now, 
Here's one of the big things that I want you to notice about the kingdom. You and I are not the conquering king in this kingdom. That's one of the things that Jesus is trying to teach here. You and I are not the conquering king. You and I are not the judges. You and I are not the sorters. You and I are not the arbiters of what's going to happen. But there is a conquering king, and he's going to come at the right time, and he's going to judge in the proper way, and he's going to sort things out for us. And this is really, really good news because it means that we don't have to be God. Amen? Okay? He's... Just like last week I said he is the harvest maker, he's also the judge, and he's the sorter. And in fact, you read this parable, you realize that he says that if we make ourselves the judge, it often ends up doing more damage than it does good. You ever done that? You ever looked at a situation or looked at somebody and said, you know what? God needs to act here and I'm going to act on God's behalf. I'm going to take care of this for him. And with really good intentions, all right, I'll I'll personalize this. I've done this many times. I'm going to righteously go and take care of this situation. And I end up making things worse than they were in the first place. This parable cautions us against doing that, against, against playing God. You ever notice how you can screw things up that way? There are often good intentions behind a judgmental attitude, but bad results. Amen? Jesus says this through Scripture. He says, listen, I'm going to take care of this. This is part of faith. You have to trust in me. So why do we persist? Why do we persist? And let's make sure we understand this. I want to make sure we we get this. There is a difference between judging and judgment. There is. See, a lot of people take this teaching and teaching from Matthew chapter 7, the first part of it, and they say, we're never supposed to judge anything. Okay, that's not what Jesus is saying here. He's talking about being the final judge, the condemning judge, the, the judge of arbitration. He's not talking about us living with discernment and wisdom. He's not talking about us having the ability to look at something and saying, you know what, I don't think I should be involved in that. Or looking over here and saying, you know what, this is my brother or sister in, in Christ and they're going down the wrong road. I'm going to try and go and help them with that. The idea, though, is that we never go to them and say, you're going to hell. Okay? Or to treat them in that manner. We maybe have never actually said that to somebody, unless you're in your car, but, but we treat them that way. Okay? So there's a difference. We have to live with wisdom and discernment. We have to be able to judge that way, but we are not the final arbiter of this. And so he says the kingdom of heaven may be compared to this. And that's interesting because often when we think of the kingdom of heaven, we think of something uh, in the by and by, something up there or out there. But he's speaking of here on earth now. I mean, I mean, that's what the parable says. He's talking about right now, here on earth. And, and, and again, that speaks to that, that nature of the kingdom of God that we're in right now, where it's the already but not yet. It's here, but it's not consummated yet. And every time I read this parable, I think back to the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 6 and that prayer that Jesus taught the disciples that goes like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Uh, Honored be your name. Revered be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
You see, the kingdom of heaven is not just something that we're waiting for, but it's something that has already been started with the coming of Jesus Christ. One author writes this, and, and, and I know we could argue about the language, especially if you're into dimensionality. I get all of that, and we can have that discussion if you want. Even so, I think this language is helpful for us to understand this. He writes this. The church is praying about and diligently working on bringing up there down here. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The church is praying about and diligently working on bringing up there God's kingdom down here. In fact, in Mark chapter 1, the gospel of Mark chapter 1, right out of the gate, Jesus comes and says this to everybody. He says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is here. I'm ushering it in. Repent and believe the gospel. Let's get this thing started right now. It's not going to be perfect or completed, but let's get it started right now. And as the church, we're in that business. But of course, that makes things messy, does it not? The already and not yet part of this, it makes things messy. Things are are yet to be fully restored, though we know that restoration is assured. But here's how another author says it. He says, the arrival of the kingdom of heaven on earth has yet to prevent the survival of evil on earth. The arrival of the kingdom of heaven on earth, the arrival of Jesus the first time has yet to prevent the existence of evil on earth and we have to live in that tension and we don't like that and we get frustrated by that and Jesus knows that. He knows. He he says, listen, there is victory but, but we're still living in the already but not yet. It's known as a liminal space. It's known as a space in between. It's known as the threshold. We're not prior to the kingdom, but we're not in the fully completed kingdom yet. We're in between. We're in that liminal space. And that creates tension. Liminality always brings with it tension. And many people just don't care for this. I get that. We want out. And so we pray, Jesus, come and come now. Come yesterday. Come before tomorrow morning and I have to go back to work. On April 14th, there are a lot of people praying, just Jesus, just come right now. That would be really helpful to me, okay? Or we engage in what's known as the geographical solution to our problems. I'm going to move somewhere else where there's less evil. That's the whole Montana conversation. I'm going to move not Montana. I'm amazed at how many people want to run from their problems and move to Montana as if there's no wickedness in Montana. Have you ever been to Montana? There's wickedness there too. Maybe you can avoid it a little bit easier, but it's there. Those are not solutions. Here's the problem. Jesus doesn't call us out of the world, but rather he prays for us as he sends us into the world to be light and salt. He prays for us in in the Gospel of John, chapter 17, that we would be kept and protected and guarded from Satan. He says, I'm sending you into the world. It's going to be hard. There are going to be some knocks. You're going to suffer some setbacks, but I am there with you, and I am going to protect you and keep you. And those knocks are actually going to be good for you in many ways. I'm going to redeem those knocks and and, and they're going to serve to glorify me. Your suffering is for your good and my glory. And so he prays for us as he sends us. Listen, this is one of the challenges that you and I have as human beings. You and I like to read scripture through the lens of our life. We read scripture through the narrative and the story and the lens of our life and then we try to tweak or adjust scripture to fit our lives. And the reality is is that Jesus calls us to read our lives through the reality of scripture and reform and conform our lives to scripture. That's the call. This is what doesn't change. We are called by the power of the Holy Spirit to change. 
And so now we go to Jesus' explanation of the parable in verses 36 through 43. Then Jesus left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. Notice that the seed is different this week from, from last week's parable. Last week, the seed was the word of God. Now it's the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and, will gather, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into a fire, the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. So let's spend some time discussing this and unpacking that. Verse 38 says, the good harvest are those with Jesus. And those trying to mess up the harvest are those with Satan. Remember last week I talked about this. I said Jesus in Matthew chapter 12 says, if you're not with me, then you are against me. There's no spiritual neutrality when it comes to Jesus, okay? You can't be, you can't be not with Jesus but not against him. But, but a lot of people say that. They say, ah, Jesus and I, we have a deal. He does his thing, I do my thing, and we don't bother each other, and that's fine. Not according to Jesus, there's two kingdoms, the kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of God, and you're in one or the other. And you're deceived if you think your, quote, neutrality will excuse you from this coming judgment. So bearing that in mind, let's talk about this agriculture thing that Jesus seems to be hung up on. He uses a lot of agricultural illustrations and imagery. Have you noticed that? In this case, it's the idea of unwanted plants growing with the intended, intended plants that they're going to harvest for a crop. Might be helpful for you to know, I talked about how I was studying the horticulture of the first century around the Mediterranean, uh, and, and it's interesting, back then it was really common, apparently, when, when a, a farmer would plant wheat, of course he's not planting weeds and he doesn't want weeds, but occasionally he would plant the wheat and, and weeds would sprout up with, with the wheat, well, it was very common for the farmer not to go out and try to pull the weeds out of there. He would, just like Jesus says in the parable, he'd let the weeds grow up with the wheat, and then when he harvested the wheat, that's when he would separate it out. And he would actually bring all the weeds together, bind them together, let them dry out, and then he would use those weeds as fuel. He would burn the, the, the weeds as fuel. So this imagery resonates here. So now let's talk a little bit about weeds. The Greek word for weeds is zizanian. Zazanian. It just sounds like a plant or a flower, doesn't it? I mean, that's, I, I like that, that name. I, I, have a, I have a friend who's in the weed control business. He has a business where he goes out and controls weeds for residences and businesses. That's what he does all day long. He works with weeds and against weeds. His name is Ed Taylor. He, he, likes, to to say that he likes to say that a weed is just a misunderstood flower. Isn't that cute? Uh, the problem with that here, though, is that Jesus doesn't quite buy that. Jesus says, listen, you may think you're just misunderstood, and that might be your excuse come judgment day, that you're just misunderstood and, and you're a little bit naive. Jesus says that's not going to let you off the hook here. Jesus is closing every door to every excuse that you and I possibly might have for, for being able to get into the kingdom of God at the end 
without ever acknowledging Christ as our Lord and our Savior. So he says, no, don't buy that. A couple other things Ed has told me about weeds. He says, you know, they grow anywhere and everywhere. They just grow everywhere. And they'll live off anything and they'll suck the life out of everything. He said this, he says, weeds are a botanical cancer of sorts. And they always start small, but in the end, they try to take over. Um, that speaks to the idea of, of how, uh, like, at my house, I have a lot of rock. And I'll look and I'll see a one weed sprout up and I'll go, ah, oh, it's just one weed, no big deal. Three days later, it's taken over the, the, the driveway. You know what I mean? I mean, they just, they just go that quickly and they start small. In the end, they're so big. I want you to think about these observations in a spiritual way. And I know that's hard. I understand that's really hard. Okay? I know this is tough language for us to hear, but this is the way Jesus spoke and it's what he's talking about and he wants to make sure that we get it as hard and challenging as this might be. I want you to remember that Jesus is the same one who in John chapter 11 wept at Lazarus' grave but also turned around and pointed at people and said, you are the sons of the devil. You understand? He's got both sides going. By the way, that's a really good conversation starter. You should try that sometime. You're the son of the devil, you know that? Just see what happens where it goes, okay? Good pickup line. No. Finally, Ed says this. This is interesting. Some weeds flower, and for a a time, they look better than the non-weeds. Some weeds flower, and for a time, they look better than what you planted to try to make your place look beautiful. Now, that should resonate. In other words, it's often hard to tell the difference between what's real and what's fake, what's good and what's bad. Do you understand that? This is why Jesus comes along and says, you're not the final judge. You can't know for sure. This is why he tells this parable. But Jesus also says, I'm not just telling you the parable to tell you that you're not the final judge, but I'm also calling you to contend with this with faith and patience until I sort it out at the end. He's going to be the sorter. He's going to be the harvester. He's going to be the harvest maker. And he is the conquering king. He is all of those things, not us. Our call is faithful obedience to what he wants us to do in his kingdom that is coming right now. In fact, here's the fact. Michael Wilkins says this. God allows both believers and unbelievers to live in the world until the day of judgment. God allows both believers and unbelievers to live in the world until the day of judgment. So we could call this the doctrine of delayed judgment. The doctrine of delayed judgment. Now, let's talk a little bit about this. You and I, we desire that that justice would be swift, right? We desire that judgment would be swift, right? Unless, of course, it's us. Then we desire delayed justice, delayed judgment, or we desire grace, forgiveness, and mercy, okay? Okay? But, but, but when it comes to somebody, something happening to us, we desire that justice would be swift. See, when you and I, when we talk about theology, one of the things that often comes up is this idea of the fairness of God. Is that really fair of God? Is that really equitable of God? Should God really have done it this way? Because it seems to me that God should have really done it. This would have been much more fair. This would have been much more equitable. The truth is, the real problem in this world is not the fairness of God, but the fickleness of the human heart. Amen? That's the real problem. And we avoid dealing with that by talking about the fairness of God in order to distract us from the fact that our fickleness is what's at issue. 
And really, we should want a God who judges. We should desire that. A big part of God's goodness and grace is the fact that he is going to judge. And without his judgment, we have no hope. There's no promise of the coming new Jerusalem without his judgment. And that's what gives us hope. But he's going to judge on his time. Uh, Miroslav Wolf, who's a wonderful New Testament scholar, I'm going to read a, a, a bit of a lengthy excerpt about this idea of judgment and the way God is going to judge in the end. But I want you to hear it because I think this will be very helpful. It was very helpful for me. But it's tough language, and I want you to be prepared for that. But listen to what he says. He writes this. The practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance. The practice of nonviolence the practice of passivism, if you want to say it that way, requires that we believe in divine vengeance. Otherwise, we're not going to be able to practice it. He writes, my thesis is unpopular with many in the West, meaning you and I here in the United States, but imagine speaking to people as I have whose cities and villages have been first plundered, then burned, and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. They say, we should not retaliate? Why not? Why wouldn't we retaliate? And I say, the only means of prohibiting violence by us is to insist that violence is only legitimate when it comes from God. That's a powerful statement. The only means of prohibiting violence by us is to insist that violence is only legitimate when it comes from God. Violence thrives today secretly nourished by the belief that God refuses to take the sword. He's arguing that that's why there's violence today because we don't believe that God is going to do anything about it. It takes the quiet of a suburb for the birth of the thesis, uh, of the thesis that human nonviolence is a result of a God who refuses to judge. In a scorched land, at those lands that I have seen, soaked in the blood of the innocent, the idea will invariably die like other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. And then he says this, if God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end of violence, that God would not be worthy of our worship. If God isn't going to do something about this in the end and if his judgment isn't going to be strong and convicting and condemning, we should not worship a God who doesn't do that. That God that does this, that where there will be a final judgment, he is worthy of our worship. So the Bible says that, that God is real and he's just. Why then, why we say, doesn't he do something about this now? Whatever it is that we're upset about, why doesn't he do something about it now? And the answer is he will. But right now what's happening is our faith is being tested. And if faith is never tested, then it isn't faith. And so out of this, we should also realize that this parable teaches us about patience as well. Patience. This sermon just keeps getting better, doesn't it? Patience, something else that we love to embrace and talk about. We go to patience conferences all the time and pay our money to learn how to be more patient, right? But patience yields fruit too. In fact, it's part of the fruit of the Spirit. Patience is a demonstration that you and I belong in the kingdom of heaven. And there are many benefits of patience. Um, you, you know, clinical research has demonstrated that if you're a patient person, you will have less stress in your life. So if you're really stressed, you might check your patience. You might find that you're a really impatient person. 
Patience also aids in good decision-making. I will tell you that my worst decisions in life have almost always been made in what I would call emotional haste. I get emotional about something and I want a decision quickly. Those are the worst decisions that I have ever made. Impatience I would also describe as a fruit of wickedness. Patience is a fruit of the Spirit. Impatience is a fruit of wickedness. Patience also allows us to consider the perspectives of other people and to develop something called empathy, which is very helpful. In other words, being other-centered rather than self-centered. And this is a big one. This is probably my favorite. Patience, according to James chapter 1, patience produces in something, something in us called hupomene. Hupomene is the word that we translate perseverance, steadfastness, or endurance. If you're somebody who wants to be be able to persevere and who is steadfast and, and who is rock solid and somebody who endures, it's helpful to develop patience and to practice patience. Patience tests our faith and that which is tested grows and becomes stronger. And James says it eventually leads us to maturity. It's also interesting that Jesus says in this parable that what's gathered is not only the lawbreakers, but all causes of sin. That jumped out at me a couple of weeks ago, and I thought, I need to figure out what that means, causes of sin. Well, here you go. Are you someone who likes to stir the pot, but not necessarily manifest outward sin behavior? Are, are you one of those people? I'm just saying. Are you a pot stirrer? Okay, here, let me put it in, in another way. I'll just exhort you, do not be a drama queen. And that's a genderless term, guys. I found that guys can be just as big a drama queen as as women, right? That's the best amen I've ever gotten at redemption. Talk like this more often. So, So here you go. Here's what a drama queen does. You're somebody who likes to rile things up and then back off and watch everybody damage each other. You know what? You're the damage causer. You're the damage maker. You need to realize that. They're still responsible for their sin, but you're just as culpable. You need to understand that. Are you a gossiper? Are you a gossiper? Watch out. And I know some of you will say, well, Paul lists gossip as a sin. Why would you say that? It's not a cause of sin. It's a sin itself. Yes, but gossip is one of those sins that's also catalytic in its ability to to, to lead to even more sin. Do you understand that churches have split over gossip? Families have destroyed each other over gossip. Some innocent little third-party evaluation of somebody else, and the next thing you know, there's a forest fire of conflict. Gossip is catalytic. Watch out. Are you a stumbling block? Do you like to invite people to sin because, you know, grace will cover it? Watch out. Are you, somebody, are you someone who cheers other people's sin even though you don't engage in that sin yourself? Well, you should just be who you want to be and be whoever it is that you are. Go ahead and do all of that. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to participate. But you go ahead. That's Romans chapter 1. Paul says you're in big trouble if you're doing that. All causes of sin will be bound up and thrown into this furnace. But he also says lawbreakers here too. Yikes. We're all lawbreakers, aren't we? Yes. Aren't we all lawbreakers? Can I have an amen on that one too? Yes, we are. Yes, we are. So what do we do with that? Here's what we do with that. Jesus, see the answer is always Jesus, I'm telling you. 
Jesus took the the judgment. He took the condemnation. He took the punishment and the penalty on the cross for all lawbreakers who would believe in him. That's the gospel. We're all lawbreakers, but there are those of us who have come to Christ and Jesus took that punishment, that condemnation, that penalty, that judgment on the cross for us. But judgment will come for those who do not believe. So let's wrap this up by talking about that judgment at the end that Jesus so clearly talks about. David Hill writes this, All that opposes the gospel are destined for oblivion. The language Jesus uses in this parable is clear, unequivocal, and includes the unhappy weeping and gnashing of teeth scenario. This is what the parable says about the kingdom of heaven, that that only believers are going to be there in the end, in the consummate kingdom. And, And unfortunately, we live in a culture that denies the reality of the doctrine of hell, even though it's clearly laid out in Scripture that there is a place called hell and that there are people in it and that it exists. And that Jesus, 25% of his teachings, according to some scholars, is about hell, about the reality and the doctrine of hell. We live in a culture that, as Miroslav Wolf would, would say, speaking of his quote earlier, just ignores that fact. Um, the social sciences talk about how human beings practice something called civil inattention. Uh, I don't know if you've ever been to, uh, for instance, um, New York and walk around in Manhattan. Uh, for a long time, um, when they decided to clear Manhattan of, of the, the, the beat cops, the guys that would just walk around, uh, the muggings in, in Manhattan increased because people would get mugged there and, and people on the streets would just walk by pretending that it wasn't there. That's known as civil inattention. One Sunday afternoon, I, was, I, I took my kids uh, when they were younger, Darby and Shelby, to, to, to Walmart, and we had to park way, way, way out because it was really, it's Sunday at Walmart, it was busy, and so we parked way out. And, and as we got closer to the store, we heard this yelling and screaming match going on between two people. They were fighting over a parking place that was right up front, okay? And both of them had driven into the parking place, and now they're out yelling and screaming at each other in each other's face. And I took the kids, and I just, man, I pretended that that wasn't happening. I walked all the way around. And I watched as people walked out of Walmart. They walked out. They saw that happening, and they just went like this. Civil inattention. This is a theological civil inattention of sorts. We see this expressed and taught and clearly laid out in Scripture, and we just tend to ignore it because it's unpleasant and we don't like it. But Jesus is adamant about this. Listen to what he says in verses 47 through 51 just a little bit later. He says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers but threw the bad away. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I don't think you can get any clearer on this teaching. So let me read to you one more time what the Redemption website says about what we believe about the restoration of all things. Here you go. It's a little bit shorter, and this is what it says. We believe in the personal, glorious, and bodily return of our Lord Jesus Christ with his holy angels when he will exercise his role as final judge and his kingdom will be consummated. We believe in the bodily resurrection of both the just and the unjust, the unjust to judgment and eternal conscious punishment in hell as our Lord himself taught, and the just 
to eternal blessedness in the presence of him who sits on the throne and of the lamb in the new heaven and the new earth, the home of righteousness. On that day, the church will be presented faultless before God by the obedient suffering and triumph of Christ. In other words, it's Christ's work who saves us, not ours. Our work is merely in response to his goodness to us. And all sin will be purged and its wretched effects forever banished. That's good news. And we want that. Jerry Brashears, who's a New Testament scholar, writes this about Matthew chapter 13. Good news, uh, excuse me, God does not want us to be naive as if the kingdom is fully here. And God does not want us to be hopeless as if the kingdom has yet, not yet begun. The kingdom has come and is coming. God will work his rescue not by obliterating the physical earth, but by recreating it. He will use humans who are a part of the problem as well as part of the solution to bless, redeem, and restore. In all this, we are not observers of a divine drama, but participants helping with the redemption, each playing the role God has assigned for us to play in making the invisible kingdom visible. Guys, we as Redemption Arcadia are called to live faithful, to live patiently, to not live as the conquering king and as a final judgment, to place our faith in him. We know that we want goodness, but we know that in Christ, goodness has come, and that's what we are called to.